Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode three of the Courageous Curiosity podcast. My name is Superintendent Ben Minka, and I am here in Novi Community School District. Super excited to have um, some incredible people with us today, as we always do. Uh, and you might notice, if you're watching the show and you've watched the first couple episodes, you'll notice that one of our students, uh, Ben Azuz, who is actually one of our interns for our uh, supervisor of communications and community engagement, uh, George Sippel, uh, Ben's initial design work helped inspire our new logo, which is uh, on display behind us. So thank you, Ben, for that. And today is a really unique day because we're going to be talking about something that, as always, we talk about things that are kind of hard hard to discuss. And so one of the things that we've been curious about, and we've had a lot of requests to, to kind of talk about this because it's something that's facing our country and our, and our, new gen, our younger generations, is this idea of the opioid crisis and the stigma associated with it. And so what I'm really curious about is, is this the problem that some people say that it is? And, you know, quite frankly, I'm not sure everybody realizes what types of problems we're even dealing with with this because I'm not sure that it's talked about uh, enough. So we have two very special guests with us today. Uh, first, we have Ken Daniels with us, and many of you are going to know uh, Ken's work. He's been a play-by-play announcer for the Red Wings, uh, 26 seasons of play-by-play, I believe. Is that right? That's right. 26 seasons, and he is also one of the leading voices against predatory practices in the addiction treatment industry, co-founder of his son's uh, his son Jamie, uh, the Jamie Danielson Foundation, um, in memory of their late son, and, and he's just got an incredible story uh, to tell. And then we're also joined by Stella Resco, um, who is a professor of social work at Wayne State. Is that correct? Yes. Okay, I got that right. And um, in addition to your work in social work, you specialize in the stigma associated with this type of treatment. Is that right? So a lot of my work and research has been focused on substance use, including treatment and um, prevention services, but also addressing stigma and looking at public perceptions and families that have been affected by substance use. Well, thank you both uh, for being here and being willing to give up some of your time to really discuss this super important issue. And, you know, before we really get into the meat and potatoes of this, can I just have to ask? So (laughs) you spend uh, every other night, every night, you know, running play by play for the Red Wings. Tell us a little bit about our outlook. Are we going to make the playoffs? What's your prognosis? What, what What's your thoughts on the season overall? What year would you like to make the playoffs? <laughs> well, let's take about it's this not going to be in 2023. <laughs> it looks like we're in a little bit of a sell off mode right now. No, we're in a sell off mode. Yeah. Not, not totally, though. I yeah. mean, the right thing was done. And uh, Ronick was under contract when you get an offer. Uh, like they got for Philip Peronick, the defenseman who went to Vancouver. It was a great deal. And Tyler Bertuzzi, they weren't going to come to agreement with him. I wish Tyler all the best in Boston. He just looks like a Bruin to me. Mm-hmm. And I, I love <laughs> Tyler, but they weren't going to come to a deal with him. So uh, Steve has the plan, and the plan was to be competitive this year, unlike the 11-2 losses and 10-9 and whatever it was mm-hmm. uh, a season ago. And to that point, they've been competitive. And he yeah. signed uh, people who, who know how to win and can help the kids grow, and it's a growing process process fans may not like it uh, but I know many years ago when Ken Holland was here he said if you want to rebuild it's I'm here to tell you it's eight to ten years he's not wrong yeah should he have started it earlier yeah but mm-hmm. for Steve now and going in what year he came in 2019 mm-hmm. and the 
the, the rebuild probably started two years earlier. So we still got a few years left until you're, you're truly right there, depending what he does in the summer. So I think they're on the right path. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And I would agree. I, I love uh, watching him play and it sounds like, and it looks like on the ice that they got a lot of speed and they got a lot of potential and hope for the future with mm-hmm. some, some capital. So yeah. And the, the assets <clears throat> to, uh, to draft well, and then you got to, yeah. then it's up to Chris Draper. <laughs> he's, yeah. a, he's very good at what he does and a good yeah. staff. So, but again, whoever you're picking, if you're not picking in the top 10 and, Mm-hmm. We seem to, but never get the number one uh, in the lottery. It's uh, it's still three to four years for most to even get here. Jonathan mm-hmm. Bergeron, who's playing very well for the Red Wings now, was drafted in 2018. Wow. He's a rookie now. Wow. It takes time. Yeah, it does. Well, uh, that's always exciting, and I know people will love to you know, always hear your take on that. But one of the real reasons why I'm super excited to talk to you is that you lost your son, Jamie, um, back in 2016. And since then, you and your ex-wife started a foundation. You've shared your story. Uh, tell us a little bit about your journey and just maybe how you got to this place and, and maybe a little bit about Jamie's life and, and, and how you got to this point. Wow. That's a lot, but I'll try to yeah. condense it. Um, and it really, it's, and as Stella said, it's, it's the, the shame and stigma uh, surrounding this disease can preclude recovery. And to think that Jamie's uh, uncles and aunt, my, my brothers and sister, didn't know uh, that he was struggling. He was studying for his LSATs uh, in Florida uh, while working at a law firm and then got patient brokered. And it's, it's a long story, but patient brokering is the predatory practice where you find uh, kids with good insurance and you put them into a, a home for very cheap rent or no rent whatsoever and send them to a doctor who's affiliated with that home. And that doctor, basically what he does is he rips off the insurance industry where you're charged, and Jamie was for one of them, as they call it, liquid gold, uh, for peeing in a cup for a blood work that he didn't need was $17,000. Mm. And Dr. Michael Lagotti, and we just read a victim impact statement in um, in, in Miami uh, in January uh, that uh, he's going to get 20 years in federal prison. So, mm-hmm. But he won't go until June because hopefully he's turning on another one of Jamie's doctor who prescribed him Xanax. So you're re- a, a recovering addict mm. is prescribed Xanax. And Jamie feeling better about his life and then on Xanax and uh, someone in that house gave him a pill, which he should have known not to take, but it was laced with fentanyl. So he was patient brokered and we're trying to stop that practice but that's Jamie's story, who was fun-loving, uh, mm-hmm. would loyal as could be, and with so many letters we got from friends after the fact, just how loyal Jamie was. He graduated from Michigan State, and then uh, while struggling because he was uh, turned on to prescription drugs in his frat year, in his uh, freshman year at Michigan State from the frat, which closed down a year after he left, and because kids have prescription bottles and say, mm-hmm. yeah, it can't hurt you, doctor mm-hmm. prescribed it. Well, within five days, Jamie was addicted. That doesn't happen to everybody, but it can happen. How everybody could be susceptible, but you don't know. Mm-hmm. His sister could probably take the same thing um, for any uh, illness that you may have or surgery recovering. And mm-hmm. you don't know, but for Jamie, who was addicted in five days, and we believe it started with Adderall in high school, mm. which too many kids take just for the extra time, mm-hmm. or feeling better, or exams and studying in the cram with, with Adderall. Mm-hmm. And we think that's where it started when he was misdiagnosed with ADHD. Because, because he was smart enough to know he needed more time on tests, we sent sure. the doctor he faked the test to get the Adderall. Yeah, it's, it's a, such a tragic story. And I'm wondering, since you have experienced such a just horrific experience in, in your family and, and with everything that happened to Jamie, are you finding that more people are coming to you and coming forward and saying, hey, Ken, you know, 
this this your story kind of inspired me to come forward because I think this is almost like an undiscussed issue. Like I think there's a lot of conversations around the typical drugs, you know, heroin and, you know, a lot of times people talk about crack or cocaine and those types of things. But when you're talking about prescription pills and those types of things, it's almost like people either don't want to talk about it or they don't think it's a real problem. They don't think it's a real problem. And they don't want to talk about it once you find out the addiction in the family. Mm -hmm. And we didn't. Mm -hmm. We were shameful of it, and sure. we acquiesced to Jamie's wishes when he went to Florida. He didn't want his friends knowing. I mean, most mm -hmm. probably knew, let's be honest. Mm -hmm. But he didn't want them knowing. So we didn't talk about it either. As I say, I didn't tell my brothers and sister mm -hmm. about it. So they were shocked. Can you imagine telling them that their, their nephew had passed? Mm -hmm. <laughs> what the hell? Right. We didn't even know anything was wrong. Right. But we also thought back in 2015 and 16, you go in and you, you check in and all of a sudden you're sober and that's the end of it. No, mm -hmm. he was sober for 228 days. Well, that's 228 days of sobriety because the days matter. Mm -hmm. But you need years and years and years and years. As Stella knows, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's an everyday thing. So we, we get the word out now that we hope people are willing to talk about it. Still, they don't. But even within their own family, if they know to get help and they see the signs right away, that will help because it's not an easy process and it does take the whole family to be involved. Yeah, in hearing you talk about how you couldn't even share with your family, it, it's probably a common occurrence when people face this. So, mm -hmm. Stella, how, how do you fight the stigma associated with this this problem? I mean, we obviously have to talk about breaking down barriers and those types of things, but how do we get to that, you know, knowing that there are many people that might be faced with a similar situation? Well. And I, I think this, the, the stigma associated with st substance use is very common, and many families don't talk about it. Many people that are affected by it don't talk about it. And part of the, you know, we look at our society and, you know, what do we define to be a problem? What do we recommend when someone is experiencing problem? And just general, you know, social perceptions do matter. That's going to mm -hmm. shape the advice of, you know, what do you do when your family member might be experiencing a problem? And if, if you even consider it to be a problem. Um, I think with, you know, prescription drugs, um, we've seen a lot of kind of greater recognition that substance use does affect large numbers of people and, you know, many different um, groups within our society. And so I think there is generally uh, the attitude towards substance use. It's often been very stigmatized. We look down upon people that have substance use issues, labeling them things like an addict or um, you know, abuser and use a lot of kind of stigmatizing language. Um, so that that's definitely a challenge. But just, again, recognizing some of these problems, like we have a very toxic drug supply at this point in time. And so using prescription pills that many people might consider to be safe is, is not always safe. Um, so many things can be laced with fentanyl. Also, just even combining substances, so combining like Xanax with opioids, that's going to increase the risk of an overdose. And just the number of overdoses that we've experienced in, in Michigan and also nationally, it's just grown. And um, it's been a problem that's, I think, affecting more people. And many of us know someone either you know, personally that has experienced an overdose or a death um, or have, you know, know of other people in, in their communities. And I think just bringing attention to these issues is really important because also the treatment for these, these problems are often very stigmatized as well. And it seems like in, in listening to both of you talk that a lot of times uh, I would imagine that obviously the prescriber is, you know, part of the problem. Do you find that through your research and some of your work, you're raising awareness around 
how much someone should be being prescribed or is is there some sort of regulatory uh, effort that's being made to say hey wait a second you know we don't we don't need to be prescribing you 20 of these pills or whatever i mean are you finding that we're making some inroads and some progress in that area I think there has been, you know, the federal government and also the state government have put a lot of effort to addressing the drug overdose crisis. And one thing that's gotten a lot of attention is prescribing. So we have seen a, a number of changes where we're not seeing the, the large number of prescriptions. When we looked at, you know, in the past, the number of prescriptions per capita was incredibly high in many places, including Michigan. And so that ha has changed quite a bit. But we are still experiencing lots of overdose deaths even though that has changed so it's it's not just prescription drugs and you know the, the, the other issue is that you can go uh, to your grandparents house and they maybe had knee surgery 10 years ago and the pills are just sitting in the medicine mm -hmm. cabinet and I know through Jamie's friends and mm -hmm. they'd go find them and the key is and not to flush them down the toilet there are ways to dispose of prescription meds that you can the Terra bags and, and the Jamie Daniels Foundation supports that and we do give them out at many of our events to take those you wouldn't leave you hope you would leave a loaded gun in your house well you're doing the same thing mm -hmm. really mm -hmm. if you're leaving prescription drugs around for teens to find them and they do because we find that uh, I think the numbers were 80 to 90 percent of those who wound up being addicted to even heroin mm -hmm. uh, will start with prescription drugs prior to the age of 18 so if they're sitting in your medicine cabinet at home mm -hmm. get rid of them yeah if you don't need them or lock them there's there's a way to do that to stop it even from happening I was reading a horrific story to, to piggyback off what you just said that um, I, I'm not sure a lot of parents would even know about, but there were a group of high school kids and they had collected some of these medicine pills from different, you know, uh, parents, grandparents, whatever, and they, they had a party and they poured all of these things into a bowl and kind of mixed them up and uh, a lot of very dangerous medications, especially when you think about combining them with others. And, and I don't really think parents even have a clue that this is out there and that this is something that happens. And I don't know if that's really prevalent or common knowledge. Probably not. Mm -hmm. I think we just don't know. You go to a party and you don't know what's being had, and we didn't know what was happening in his uh, frat at Michigan State either. Mm -hmm. He wasn't the only one, but he's uh, one, and there were a few others who passed uh, from his frat uh, from those years, but he was just one who was more susceptible to it, and you're addicted within days. So one of the things that um, I think people will say that are watching this show is, you know, it's kind of normal uh, for kids to experiment with certain things. So whether that's alcohol or cigarettes or vapes or, you know, w whatever it may be. And, you know, that was probably some, that was an argument from, you know, you think about the 60s and the 70s and the way that people uh, engaged in life. And, and so I think sometimes some of our families might say, well, you know, kids are going to experiment with different things. But why is this different? Stronger. Yeah. <laughs> Everything's stronger mm -hmm. than it was when I grew up in the, the, the 70s, mm -hmm. um, for sure, right? Mm -hmm. you, you must see that still. Yeah. I, I mean, even things like cannabis yeah. today, when we look at, like, there's research that looks at DEA samples of confiscated cannabis, and the amount of increase in THC has been considerable in the past several decades. So just a lot of substances have grown stronger. We have things like synthetic opioids, like fentanyl. 
And a lot of um, times when we're seeing overdoses, it's not someone necessarily intentionally trying to use fentanyl. Um, there's many situations. There's been you know cases in the news. There was an overdose death of students at Ohio State earlier in the year, and they were two students that were taking Adderall to study for exams, mm -hmm. and they got it illicitly they, um, on the street. But you know there's situations with fentanyl that you 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 can use it you know very small number of times and because of the fentanyl in there it can cause an overdose and and again if you're using alcohol at the same time that's going to increase the risk of the your breathing stopping and so that's one of the the other things that that we are seeing so I think a lot of what we're focusing on in some of the prevention work I'm doing is, and, and a lot of what I'm hearing from young people is they want information on how to be safer. They don't want um, interventions or preventions that are going to tell them, you know, the, the Nancy Reagan, just say no era. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of teens want more practical information. And so one of the things we hear people asking, one is like, how do you experience an overdose? Or um, they want to know, what can I do to be safer? You know, and, and different things like, you know, using, if you are using a substance, not using it by yourself. That's another um, situation that can increase the risk of overdose. And there's also different periods in time um, where the overdose ri risk is greater. So if you've been in um, recovery and you've had a period of, uh, a shorter period of sobriety, that can be a period where we see increased um, overdose. And so some of that information, I think, you know, young people want to know. They want to be safer. They don't, you know, I think we see a lot of substance use in, in adolescence. That's often where we see substance use begin and escalate. And part of that is developmental. Um, you think about the goals of kind of separating, uh, kind of in individual, um, becoming an individual and separating from your family. And so developmentally, some, t uh, you know, substance use can kind of serve in some of those needs, but there's also these risks that we want kind of young people to be aware of and be mindful of um, because, you know, the consequences, you know, can be quite and the way that they and the way that they're even hiding the fentanyl, and I've seen in many states and, and school districts in Pennsylvania, uh, I don't know if it was Oklahoma, California, uh, different laws that they have put in. The, the fentanyl is now being hidden in in candies that'll look like sweet tarts and, mm -hmm. and other candies like that. And you go oh, the the depths mm -hmm. that people will go to, and you can't trust anything anymore. Mm -hmm. And anything online that you're purchasing, you you. Yes, yeah. it's, it's easy, right? Nancy Reagan, just say no. Yeah, that was easy. But man, if you see something online, I wouldn't go anywhere near it. Yeah, and if you think about it, I mean, Jamie passed way too soon, of course, and uh, it was one pill, right? I mean, that was you know obviously yes, I know there the was one, I know there right. was a pattern, but really, right. it, it, the the situation for him was the one pill. Yeah. Now he's in a sober home. Now should I don't know the circumstances of that, and they mm -hmm. they left him there for an hour. Uh, before they even called paramedics mm. because they were cleaning up the house mm. uh, because the kid he was a roommate with also patient brokered him because he called us after the fact trying to extort money from us for Jamie's belongings. So mm. we know that, and uh, that's that's the, the, the sickness of it. And mm. to think that a doctor would prescribe a recovering addict uh, Xanax, and again, he felt better. He's on Xanax. Okay, doctor prescribed that, and then someone offers him a pill, and... You're not clear because at 23, even the frontal lobes, the glutamate receptors in the brain have changed. Mm -hmm. It's a chemical imbalance when you when you are 
addicted. It's a chemical imbalance in the brain. The cognitive ability to say no has mm. been altered. Mm. So that's an issue too. It starts from there, right? So super helpful information that both of you are sharing today, and I so appreciate it. One of the things that um, I heard you talk about a little bit, Ken, was this idea of getting rid of your medication. Um, you know, there's a proper way to dispose of it. You've talked about some prevention strategies, Stella. Talk about what parents of children today could benefit from knowing. Like, how can they help uh, warning signs, things they can do for prevention. Uh, what are some practical tips that you might offer of parents that might be tuning into this show? One practical thing I would say is to get naloxone. So even if you don't think you need it, it's something good to have on hand in case you ever do need it. Naloxone is a medication that can reverse the effect of an, a drug overdose. Also known as Narcan. Narcan, right. yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but that is one thing, and I'm seeing a lot of efforts to get naloxone into the community much more so in, than in the past. In Isn't the it funny, and you say that, and we try in some school districts to go, well, wait, if we have that, isn't that hinting that they are? Well, yes, <laughs> maybe they are, right, right? Right, right. It is a problem, believe it, it or not. Yeah, and, yeah. and Novi actually is one school that does have Narcan Good. or naloxone mm -hmm. in all of the schools, which which is awesome, and we're really um, glad to see. But I think for many people, they don't want to get naloxone. The idea, my kid would never do that. Right. Um, the you know respectability. We don't want to be admitting we have a problem. But um, the fact that we can reverse a drug overdose is really important to kind of remember with opioids. And so having it on hand can be really important. Even if you don't think you need it, I just want to encourage folks to get it. And also just to kind of the stigma associated with having, you know, naloxone. Um, it, it's we're seeing a lot of communities do things like putting it in the libraries when you're checking out your books, being able to take it home. In the past, I think you used to have to go to more specialized trainings. You can always get it at other places like the pharmacy um, without a prescription. You can ask for it and, and receive it there. But just having it much more widely available in, in communities, I think, is one thing that's really important. Um, the other thing I, I think is important also is, you know, just for parents and caregivers to talk to their children and have conversations about substance use. Oftentimes it's uncomfortable. We don't want to talk about it. And some of it, you know, we have dispensaries on every other corner in some communities now. And so having the conversations with, with um, your teens and with your young adults and your family are, are really important. Um, so much of this just doesn't get talked about. And believe me, uh, those who are addicted, um, and struggling with substance use and they'll lie and they <laughs> on mm -hmm. a dime they can turn it mm -hmm. and lie I remember many times and this is 2015 and seeing Jamie and struggling to put his coat on properly I said how high are you man mm -hmm. you know and boy they can straighten up real quick when you when you challenge them mm -hmm. but if you, if you notice depression if you notice they're in a room a lot or their friends have changed or their grades are dropping there is something to discuss and know that they probably will will lie to you mm -hmm. I mean you know you, th you threaten to leave the house and I, I can only tell Jamie's story and I don't know what the right answer is for parents mm -hmm. and you know you send your kid out you're going to do the drugs you're gone and you can do that mm -hmm. I don't know maybe Stella knows better than I I, mm -hmm. I don't know what the what the right response is and that's where you you get someone to help you with it mm -hmm. as family and therapy but I know Jamie came home one day and uh, he had pee taped to his leg mm. because he knew that we had warned him if he continued to use he was gone mm -hmm. and then when you know he went and peed and I felt it and I said this isn't warm mm. 
you just knew. Mm-hmm. But those are the links that they'll go to because they're scared. And those who think, oh, well, you can just stop. No, you can't because you're going to be as sick as you've ever been in your life. And when Jamie first went to rehab here in Michigan for the first time, which wasn't long enough, and when he left that place, they told us to Google a therapist, if mm. you can imagine. <laughs> uh, he didn't want me coming in to visit him because how would it look if uh, Ken Daniel's kid mm. um, is in rehab? And uh, there's just a struggle there. And I know when Jamie was clean for those 12 days or so and came home and he looked at me and he said, Dad, I'm never using again. Mm. I'm never going through that again. The sickness, that was brutal. That was like death, which they feel. Within five days, he was using again. Mm. So, and that's that's the problem. And that's a really important message because I think for parents, we all want, I have you no, know, with my children, I always want to trust exactly what they're saying. And, yeah. you know, there's this pressure to, you know, well, I believe my kid. And uh, we, we hear that as educators all the time. You know, you, there's a dispute about something and the parents will say, well, I, I believe my kid. And I think it's important to build trust and rapport. Uh, but I think the rules change a little bit sometimes with adolescents and teens and young adults when they're dealing with some of these things and they have the ability to, to, to shade the truth quite a bit. Well, in those, you know, when you're 23 and when Jamie, we begged him not to switch homes uh, where he was in sobriety in Florida, and he said, Dad, I got this. Because all 23-year-olds got this. Mm-hmm. Of course they do. Sure. 19-year-olds, they know it all. What mm-hmm. do we know? We haven't been there. Well, we do. And Stella, you probably come across that all the time, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and Stella, I know uh, your research has focused a lot on, you know, this work. And, you know, we're going to be kind of wrapping up here, but I would love for you to share anything that you think would be valuable for anyone watching the show about this trend, uh, anything else that you'd like to add that might be helpful? I, I think it's just important to recognize, that, like, so many people are f- affected by the drug overdose crisis and just so many families. And um, if, if you do know someone um, who's been affected and needs treatment, it is a challenging process getting treatment. You do need to be persistent. Just figuring out where to get help can be difficult, but it's really important to do that. Um, so many families, you know, don't talk about things um, and, you know, going taking that step to actually get help is, is really important. But also just navigating that process can be a challenge. And so that is one thing that it, it can take some work, but it is so important to do. And just to remember too that it's not just a one time thing. A program, you know, that's twenty eight days or, or so many, you know, short specific amount of time, mm. that's not often enough. We do need more than that. And so, you know, having programs for folks in recovery, that's been really important. Um, and just providing kind of supports longer to- term are really important as well. It is, it is long term. And, and I'll say, I'd like to say the brain isn't the only organ affected mm-hmm. by opioids. It also breaks families' hearts. Mm. So and well. it does. And we, it, it's a mental illness. And if we will talk about anything below the shoulders... We'll talk about any disease. You can talk about testicular cancer or breast cancer. And uh, this epidemic kills more every year than than breast cancer does. Mm-hmm. And gun violence, although gun violence seems to be catching up. Mm-hmm. But, it, but it does. And we need to talk about it. And why won't we talk about something, a mental illness, above the shoulders? That's what it is. And yet we won't talk about that. We'll talk about any forms of cancer. 
but for some reason we don't talk about this and what the work Stella's doing and what the Jamie Daniels Foundation does. And we support nine Michigan colleges now in recovery, and mm-hmm. including Wayne State. We've written more than $400,000 in grants since um, 2018 and we raised more than $1.5 million. So mm. we're trying, but uh, we have to continue the conversation. Well, and that's a, and, and the work that both of you are doing is so important and we appreciate you spending some time with us and our community here. Uh, I know that people will be very interested to hear what both of you have to say on this topic. One one thing I'd like to do as we kind of close out, though, if we could pull up, um, I know there's a there's a comedy night uh, that's coming up um, for the Jamie Danielson Foundation. Um, so you know, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about uh, that. Yeah, you know, the, the Jamie Daniels Foundation uh, Comedy Night of Hope. Yeah, it's uh, on April 13th uh, at Mark Ridley's Comedy Castle in Royal Oak. Tickets are available now. You can go to jamiedanielsfoundation.org. Ian Bag is the headliner, and he's a good friend and hilarious, and <laughs> uh, is just improv, and he works the room. Mm. Uh, he's magnificent. So it's uh, April 13th, and Ian will also join us for the... Um, that's our, our first event. We did one last year, too, and it was a fun night. We did two shows, and Crank's Catering, I should say you also get dinner with the show okay. uh, for your tickets, and they're available at jamiedanielsfoundation.org. And as well, we're, um, we're finalizing plans, although it is in place, for uh, August 26th, a Saturday night, Motor City Casino, uh, downtown Detroit. It's the Roast and Toast of Thomas Holmstrom and Nick Lidstrom. Wow. Uh, it's the roast and toast because you know who we're roasting, Homer, and toasting Nick, because the perfect hu- uh, human, you you couldn't say anything bad about Nick Lidstrom. But Ian Bag will be there for that, and uh, Chris Draper and Jim Ralph, Mike Doc Emmerich is the MC, and we've got more to be added. So again, jamiedanielsfoundation.org. On that, tickets uh, will be available soon, but uh, please keep checking back. It's going to be a fantastic night. We roasted Mickey Redman in 2019, 800 people there at Soundboard. We hope to better that this time. And unfortunately, two years after that, uh, Scotty Bowman would have been live, but we had to go virtual. And Brett Hall, we did virtually as well. So in total, all those events, uh, you know, we raised a lot of money and we put it to good use in the grants that we write and we also have the youth adolescence center at children's hospital of michigan and big beaver in troy okay. uh, the only one of its kind with uh, our psychiatrist dr matt lacasse and uh, family help there too so uh, again if you're struggling there it's um, the youth adolescence center at children's hospital of michigan dr matt lacasse for those families who who need help Love it. I uh, thank you both so much for your just incredible insights. I think this has been so valuable. Uh, appreciate you sharing your story, Ken. And um, also, I encourage everybody to check out what the Jamie Daniels Foundation's doing um, and, and get a part, be a part of it, uh, because I think together uh, it's going to take a whole community, a society of really understanding this topic. And uh, can't thank you both enough for your expertise and time today. Stay tuned for episode four coming up soon. And thank you all for joining us on Courageous Curiosity. 